Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Business of Cyber. This is your host, Joey Vink. Our guest today is Jason Martin, the co-CEO and co-founder at Permiso. Before founding Permiso, Jason was the EVP of product at FireEye, where he was not only responsible for overall product strategy and direction, but also the integration of nine acquisitions throughout his tenure. As you can imagine, this point of view gave him insight into the challenges faced by customers, and also sometimes that small startups were best positioned to fill gaps in the market since they can move more quickly and innovate faster than larger cyber businesses. This ultimately led him to partnering up with Paul Wynn and co-founding Permiso a couple of years ago. Now that's more than enough for me. Uh, I'm excited to hand it over to Jason Martin. Well, the party is off to a good start. Jason, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining me. How's it going today? Good. Thanks for having me, Joe. Yeah, of course. Well, as a way to kick us off, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you found your way into the security industry? Yeah, so I've been in security, I think, about 25 years now, not to make myself feel too old, but um, started, uh, gosh, I'm trying to think about the the history there, but it was, I think I was, yeah, I came out of college. I took my first IT job, which was a help desk at a hospital. Then I started doing network admin and other things there. And then the hospital system hired uh, Booz Allen to do a pen test. And so these guys came in and do a red team. And I just thought it was the most amazing thing ever. I saw them being able to make a living out of testing security and dumpster diving and just doing all these really cool things finding really cool things. And I became immediately enamored. I think I always had a, a curious mindset about things like magic and picking locks. And um, even when I studied uh, computer science in college, it was largely like really understand how systems were operating stuff. But I didn't know you could have at that time, like a career in security. Uh, so talking with them really kind of set me down that, that path of uh, pursuing a, a career in offense-based security first, and then you know various different roles since then. But that's kind of how I found my way into cybersecurity. And I know since then you've found your way into a, a number of different types of roles from security leadership to you know, product leadership at security vendors and uh, product companies, advisory roles, investing roles, and now you know, CEO and, and co-founder at a, at a security startup. Um, so I'm curious, sort of throughout that evolution of your, your 25 year career, what have been some of the big things you've seen change or progress in the industry? Yeah, I think, you know, at the time when I, I started, we were just moving, you know, into client server environments and the internet was becoming a thing, right? Late 90s, early 2000s. And so I think that was that was really transformational and seeing companies just plug themselves into the internet with not a lot of security controls at the time uh, really, you know, caused a lot of issues. And um, I think we're seeing that again with new technology, and obviously we're, we're I'm actively working in the cloud space. But I think every time you have one of those big shifts in technology, you face some of the the same fundamental uh, challenges. You know, even from when you know I was helping God, I'm making myself feel old again, but helping you know companies get off of token ring onto Ethernet, and then IP based networking, and then like I said, getting on the internet and what that exposed. Um, so I think with that connectivity and and uh, openness. There comes a lot of, of challenges that, that companies face. But, um, you know, I saw the I've seen the, the industry mature through a lot of different lenses, as you kind of alluded to. I've 
been in offensive security. Uh, I, trend, I I used to work for KPMG and their their global security team there. And then in that process, uh, you know, it wasn't difficult to break into companies. And I found that a really interesting aspect of that was how do you help companies not get broken into? How do you help them better their security program and all the aspects of that? So I became really exposed to like enterprise security architecture and programs, which which really got me more involved into like the people side of how to make security effective. Like how do you build an effective security organization? Um, so I started doing a lot of that as a consultant uh, for KPMG. And then I started my, my first company, which was uh, largely kind of a, a consulting company doing both offensive and defensive work. Uh, and then also on top of that, we built a managed security service uh, because at that time we, we would find, you know, customers would struggle with a, responding to a breach or, or having an incident. And then they didn't want us to really go away. Uh, so we started to, to build. And, and so from the perspective of like an outside advisor and then monitoring networks, and eventually in that role at that company where I was CEO, I would periodically get pulled into uh, an, a for hire CISO. And a lot of times this was a company, multi-billion dollar companies that were going through uh, an issue or incident and, and were trying to build or rebuild an effective security program. So for a number of years while uh, as CEO of that company, uh, also operating as, as CISO at uh, several multi-billion dollar organizations, I got to see the lens of like just how difficult it is to operationalize and, and change security. You know, it's easy to point fingers at companies that go through breaches, Uber, obviously the most recent one, but but really it's there's nothing in that composition of what happened at Uber or even what's happening right now. And they're talking about with Twitter that's surprising, right? For anybody that's been in security and tried to operate a, at scale security program. Um, so being able to learn all of that and, and having these different, you know, views into security from breaking into it, defending it, and then having to build them at, at scale programs uh, really help kind of form my perspective on on security and what we, you know, what yeah. we need to do to make things better. Did you maybe elaborate on that point regarding why, you know, some of these high profile recent breaches or incidents are are unsurprising, maybe due to the just complexity of making a company secure? Yeah, I mean, one thing that's interesting, I think, is at least in my experience, and it's, you know, it's, I can't say it's universal, but on average, it took about three to five years to really turn around and establish embed a security culture in a company. But if you overlay that with the average tenure of a CISO at about two years, you already immediately see a problem, right? So you need to be able to have a leader who can be in place that can advocate for change and then can make sure it's, it's implemented and then monitor that. And I think sometimes, you know, companies go out and they hire high profile CISOs or they look for um, super strong technologists. And while that's great, and I, I think there's been some exceptional CISOs that do that, I think an effective CISO has to combine uh, acumen around people management, a little bit of politics, because the reality is in a big organization, politics come into that and the technical aspect. And I think what I've seen, um, you know, in the market with, with CISOs is high technical intelligence, but that might not have a, a, a high, you know, EQ on the political and organizational side, or they're strictly an organizational risk management CISO. So I think effective CISOs today really need to be a blend of strong technical security chops, plus this ability and understanding of how to influence in an org. And I think that's, that's often overlooked, um, at least from my perspective. And so what yeah. we're seeing in these breaches is common things, right? 
uh, hygiene things and security awareness. And um, those are all blocking and tackling and they're, they're not easy to do in any, any way, shape or form at scale. One thing I'm, I'm curious to get your perspective on is, uh, you, you know, I've, I've chatted with a lot of guests about what you just described regarding sort of the, the ideal characteristics of a CISO being kind of a blend of technical acumen and what I guess you could call like business acumen or the, the people management side of the equation. Um, I'm curious in your experience, you know, whether, you know, whether it's what you've experienced personally or, or through friends or, or colleagues of yours throughout the industry, um, sort of how much of that can be learned versus how much is innate, like taking someone who's got really sophisticated technical skills, who has an ambition to move into a leadership role, um, and, and they've got to expand their business acumen. So can you speak to maybe how much of that can be learned versus as, as is innate? And if it's can be learned, how you can go about doing that? Yeah, I think, you know, like many things in life, there's always an innate aspect to this. But I think first and foremost is that willingness to, to learn. They have to have that willingness to learn and not be isolated. I'll give you a real practical example. So for 10 years, I ran a security conference in Hawaii called ShakaCon. And um, I deliberately kept it single track, meaning, right, there's one set of talks that you could sit in. There's no other breakout rooms. And I always did a blend of highly technical, sophisticated talks and what I would call like policy and organizational um, topics that would affect change or how would you operate a program. And what was funny is I always knew I did a good job if the technical people said we need more technical talks and the policy people said we needed more policy talks because what I was trying to force them to do was be in a room, be exposed to each other and learn something from each other because they all have, now not everyone's open to that. Right. right. And I think so. I think to your question, it's like that openness and willingness to learn and probably acknowledge the value of something which maybe they hold a lot of personal skepticism around. Right. So you all we all know technical guys that are like, oh, those policy wonks and those risk managers, they don't really understand security. But the other side of that coin is they don't really understand, you know, at scale, commercial enterprise risk management and the trade offs. And so trying to get them to be um, less judgmental about the other side of that coin. Because reality is you do need both. And the more they learn, then the better they could actually advocate for their position, whether it was a technical position and they're they're trying to influence other people. If they learn their dialogue and what they care about, they become a better, more successful leader in their position and vice versa. And um, and so I think that that that's really what it takes. It needs, you know, you need to have an openness. So there's a lot you can learn with that openness, both directions, technical and, and policy-wise. Um, yeah. And there's conferences like the one I held and others that try to embrace that. Uh, but it was always funny. It was always funny because they're totally, totally get mad about the same thing, but just from different, different edges uh, of the spectrum. Yeah. And, and if nobody's completely happy, then that means the conference is successful. Totally. Yeah. totally. Yeah. Every year. If, if the technical guys were too happy, I didn't do my job and, yeah. and vice versa. Yeah. Cool. Well, I'm, uh, I'm curious to talk a little bit more about um, the pivot into your time at FireEye and ultimately how that led you to, uh, to founding Permiso. Can, so can you speak to, uh, to that sort of point in your career for, for a bit? Yeah, it's interesting. And cloud is, is kind of an underpinning to that. So I will admittedly say I was one of those CISOs that when the cloud was coming out, I was not a facilitator. I was a big negative Nancy, right? I was like, oh my God, this is crazy. 
we can't do this. We can barely control what we have on-prem. How can we move it you know, uh, out into the cloud and manage it? Um, but I would see it, like I mentioned before, my very first company that I co-founded was Secure DNA, and we were building solutions and technology solutions that we didn't see answers to in our customer base, but we needed to have to monitor their environments. And we were doing all this consulting and, and program development. And we were seeing the adoption of the cloud accelerate, whether it was SaaS or actual, you know, IaaS and PaaS services. And so I started getting more and more exposed to it. And funny enough, when FireEye acquired Secure DNA in 2013, the reason they did it is we had built a cloud secure, a, a security product that was delivered from the cloud. And it was a, it was a smaller portion of our overall business, but it kind of showed the direction of where things were going. At that time, FireEye largely had a fleet of appliances and um, agent-based products, and they didn't have anything in the cloud. So uh, they acquired us in 2013, and my remit uh, on that acquisition was basically the first GM of a cloud business unit for FireEye. And what that meant is really building out and scaling a cloud operations to allow the delivery of cloud uh, solutions for security from the cloud. Be real deliberate about that, right? Because there's cloud security solutions, and then you know in the first generation it was really security solutions delivered from the cloud. Um, so coming in in 2013, I did that. You know, we had a small data center footprint, and we expanded that to six global data centers, use of public cloud, and so a hybrid kind of combination um, that we built out. And that was really, can we cloudify the FireEye portfolio? So endpoint. Um, some components of network, email, uh, and then we had, through the Mandian acquisition, we had a cloud SIM solution, uh, which is ultimately called Helix. And so I did that for about, I want to say about a year, uh, building all that out and learning. And then uh, the CEO at the time, Dave DeWalt, asked me uh, at the end of that, about a two-year tenure, to uh, take over all of engineering and product management globally for the company. Uh, which was a huge honor, right? If, if you think about the heydays of FireEye and Mandiant, we were right in the heart of, you know, most of the major breaches and, and a lot of intel and stuff coming out. So uh, I took that position. So prior to founding my current company, I spent about five years uh, as the executive vice president of product and engineering at FireEye and Mandiant. And that remit was was pretty broad, right? I had to support uh, and manage a $700 million P&L. And then I had to manage technology delivery for all the rest of the components of the business, including Mandiant and the Intel and the managed defense teams. So you know, for someone who'd been in security as long as I had and, and knew the importance of some of these assets from both mm -hmm. critical infrastructure protection and everything, it was, a, it was a huge honor, huge responsibility. And I learned just an absolute ton uh, in, that, in that process. Um, how it's relevant to what I'm doing now is in that process, we really had to think about how are the capabilities that we delivered in a traditional on-prem world that are still extremely relevant, how are they going to exist in the cloud and how do you actually make them cloud relevant? And that was a big hypothesis that myself and my co-founder here at Permiso, um, Paul Wynn, uh, really were taking to heart as we were thinking about um, how, we, how we were going to steer FireEye in the right direction from a product perspective. Yeah. Before we completely pivot into Permiso, I'm curious to dig into maybe what some of those big learnings were at FireEye. We could probably do a separate episode just talking <laughs> about it. But if you maybe distill, you know, from, I think you said, what, five years or so, you know, with the, the executive vice president role, um, if you could distill that into, you know, a handful of key takeaways that have influenced 
now how you not only think about the industry, but you know, approach running a company. What are, are some of those big reflections or observations? Yeah, that's a that's a phenomenal question. Um, I think primarily what I learned is when so when you're in that vendor and you're trying to think about you know pivoting or extending your capabilities into a new sub technology substrate like the cloud, I think what we typically see, and, and FireEye was no different in this, is um, it's almost a forklift process. It's how do we take what we have, you extend the capabilities five or ten percent, and then say it's cloud or cloud ready or cloud delivered. And I think um, the fundamental learning I had is that doesn't work. Mm. And I don't think it's ever worked for any new technology substrate. I think you know whether you went from mid-range to client server to connect it to the internet to edge to IoT to public cloud. You've always seen kind of this pattern, which I think we're, we're all guilty of, which is I want to extend my existing investment that was built for, in this case, like an on-prem world into the cloud, right? Because I want to go after that, that early market. And I think what happens is when you have these new technology substrates, um, the market's not big enough for the big vendors to go and really invest in, FireEye included, right? It doesn't make sense to go invest a ton of money in a market that doesn't have a huge total addressable market at the time, even if you know it's the future. And so you're kind of in this weird position of like seesawing between how do I manage my existing business? How do I future-proof it? How do I convince my customers that I'm doing this? Because as they migrate across into this new technology, um, I can move with them. And and the key thing we saw is that it just doesn't work. It's almost like if you think of the engineering teams that adopted cloud early, they would put all their VMs in the cloud and then they'd be like, we're using the cloud. And that's not like the reality is like you have to build products natively into the cloud to get the maximum value out of the cloud. And every time we tried to forklift uh, an on-prem technology that we had built into the cloud with some modifications that allowed it to run on some kind of hypervisor in, in like Oracle Cloud, for instance, or could use the network tap in AWS. It just wasn't the right solution. And what's interesting is our cl very cloud forward customers knew it and they would call us out on it. But 99% of our customers, they didn't really know what the difference was. They just wanted to be able to tell someone, oh, that FireEye thing that's part of our architecture, uh, we we're able to run it in AWS now. Whether that meant it was doing anything or not, they just wanted to bring on their, their old vendor. So I found this, like one of the primary learnings we have is there's this super, I don't want to call it like a massive hesitancy to recognize that the things you've invested in, and you think about the trickle-down effect, I, I, this is totally normal. The hesitancy comes from, I've invested hard capital in a vendor that we took a long time to select and implement. I've trained all my people around this technology, I've operationalized it into all my workflows. And now I'm going to buy into a belief that it's not going to be effective in this new environment. And usually that takes a, a long time for markets to get over and understand that, in fact, in, in, in emerging technology, you have to go with the best of breed solution because you can't meet the needs of your customers. And then eventually the big, big players uh, like Fire and Mandian and others the market matures, the threat environment matures, and then all of a sudden they go, oh, the vendor side, they say it's a big enough market for us to invest in now, R&D and other things. And the customer's like, 
oh, that investment is actually not protecting me because I'm seeing active breaches and companies that have deployed this tech or it's happened to me and we need different solutions. And so as much as we try to force that and message that and market about it, uh, the reality was very different. And I, I kind of see that repeating over and over uh, in this space as we as we grow into the, into the cloud and other areas. Yeah. Uh, so, so just to dig into that a bit, if if we we have to make the balance between you know going after a market that's got you know a large enough TAM to to be worthwhile, but also wanting to sort of skate where the puck is going, if, if you will, how do you go about making that assessment and making that judgment? It's super hard as a vendor, right? So if I put my FireEye executive vice president hat on, it is very difficult when you're talking about an at scale, nearly billion dollar business to advocate for innovation in an in a emerging technology space that may incrementally increase revenues by two to $5 million that year. Yeah. Right? Even if you can convince management that, hey, in, in five years, this is a $100 million business because you know as a public company, you live quarter to quarter, you're trying to, to chase that. And so um, it's just really difficult. And I think that's why cybersecurity startups have been so successful over the last 10 years, because the reality is vendors can't like they, it's just the, the economics don't make sense to go invest five years ahead of where that puck is going in a meaningful enough way to actually deliver value and, and solve the problem. And this is why even at FireEye, we had a very aggressive corp development time um, team and, and strategy, because we recognize that the best thing we could do is look for moderately at scale startups with a good solution and the beginnings of, of decent market traction and just pull them in. Yeah. And the history of doing right. One of my jobs at FireEye was, you know, integrating nine acquisitions and the cultures and the tooling and the people and, you know, trying to make that into, you know, seamless solutions. So um, definitely on the vendor side, it, it's super hard. And that's why, I, again, like I said, like startups, they're, they're a superpower. They have a superpower in the space, which is they're unshackled by that that need to have material uh, accretive revenue and they can go and try and really tackle a, a problem in a space and, and really, you know, deliver meaningful value. So as my startup CEO hat on, you know, that's how we think about it. We see that, that hesitancy as opportunity for us. Yeah. All, all security startups kind of have that. Cool. So that's probably a perfect segue into a little bit more concretely, maybe what you saw at FireEye that led to you starting Permiso. Um, I know we got introduced via Travis McPeak and I uh, connected with him yesterday just saying, hey, we, I got my interview scheduled. What question suggestions do you have? How, what should I, I chat about with Jason? And this was, was the main suggestion he had, which was He's seen a lot. Um, so ask him what led to him founding Permiso uh, and specifically what he saw. So that'd be a good place uh, to go next, if you don't mind. Oh, totally. Um, so I, uh, I'll, I'll kind of take us back in time a little bit. So I, I bought my co-founder and co-CEO's company in 2016, uh, and he was the first player in the security orchestration market. And mm -hmm. uh, then ultimately, uh, Kevin Mandy and I convinced him to stick around and run product management and product strategy. And so he and I were, were kind of the, the two leaders that really had to think about where the product portfolio needed to go and how did we extend um, FireEye and Mandiant's core strength into those new areas. So if you think about FireEye and Mandiant, we we're really good at detecting evil and really good at trying to minimize noise. And so 
Um, we were thinking along those way, along those those routes. So we work with our corp dev team, and uh, we were saying, okay, we need to build cl cloud. Obviously, is one of the substrates. IoT, uh, ICS, critical infrastructure, all these other areas that we we kind of had light tendrils into. How do we go deeper and deeper into this and really own this detection capability um, for these new new areas of technology? And we did a lot. We talked to you know all the relevant, I'll call them the um, generation one cloud security companies, Evident, Redlock, Twistlock. Uh, at the time, we couldn't compete with Palo Alto's war chest. So they were, uh, you know, we were making bids on some of these companies and they would come in three uh, X what we would offer and, and stuff like that. So we, we were seeing, we knew where we needed to go. We knew what the kind of the guiding star was for the company. Um, but we were getting beaten on these innovative startups, which I told you was like a core part of our strategy. Uh, we tried to do some organic innovation in the company, but again, what I talked about previously, like at scale, even a successfully incubated product within an existing company is going to struggle to get traction if it's, you know, best case scenario is it does $5 million in the first year. It's hard to get sales attention. It's hard to get the marketing team attention. You know, it's not as easy as Hey, we have a thousand salespeople. We can just plug this new thing in and they're going to go sell. Right. And so we yeah. were struggling with our organic innovation as well. And so Paul, like to a point um, where we were just pretty frustrated, the inorganic wasn't working. The organic wasn't working. We knew what we wanted to do. And that's, we kind of decided, you know, I've spent seven and a half years there. He spent, I think three and a half, almost four years. Let's just go out and see if we can tackle these as, as entrepreneurs again. And, um, and that whole core premise was, what does detection and response look like in a true cloud world in a cloud native sense? If you're not trying to bring along your SAM and your endpoint and all this other stuff, that was kind of the beginnings of that idea. And then he and I, um, you know, we sat down, uh, COVID hit and, uh, we got our family situated and then we co-founded Permiso and, uh, decided to co-CEO as well because uh, we, we built such a great level of trust working in the trenches together at FireEye and Mandiant that um, we were just like, hey, let's share the CEO responsibility. It's a really, I'm sure you've talked to other folks on the on the show where it's, it's a lonely job, right? And he'd been a CEO and I'd been a CEO. And so we're like, hey, let's share this. And um, we knew, so that was that, that was it. Paint by numbers, that was the broad brushstrokes of what we were going after. That was, the, there wasn't a, a real detailed concrete part of that. It was just, the cloud is being underserved by all the existing technologies that we see out there. So uh, very first interview we had April 16th, 2019, I think if I got that right, um, or maybe it was 2020, God, COVID's really messed up, but it was with Jason Chan. I remember the day and month, but Jason Chan at Netflix, right? He was running security at Netflix and um, we knew we're not gonna sell anything to Netflix. They don't really buy a lot of products, they build their own, but they've had to tackle real cloud security at scale for longer than most companies had. And so he shared a ton of insights with us there that helped started you know, to ground what we were going after. Number one thing that an entrepreneur has to do, is it a real problem, right? And so from interview one to through interview 250, because we did we did at least hundred interviews before we wrote any code or did anything. Um, and up to mm -hmm. date, then about 250, we would just keep making sure this is a problem you know, they needed to acknowledge that. And um, that's how we started to hone our, our hypothesis about the, the space was really talking to CISOs, security engineers, detection engineers, 
Um, our, our first probably 10 interviews were all biased towards what I'd call cloud native security operations. So talking to teams that couldn't wait for the commercial vendors to recognize there was a problem to deliver a solution and had to go out and, and build it themselves. And once we kind of triangulated on that concept, we started to really get the form and shape of, of what Permiso was going to look like and what it looks like today. What else did you hope to get out of those interviews? Like, was there specific questions you had or subjects that you were hoping to learn more about? Yeah, often what the way we started is we didn't want to lead them in the direction that we had. You know, we had that broad hypothesis. So we right. always started those, those conversations with questions about what are the challenges they were facing? Top of mind you know, today, you know, a lot of security teams, they don't have the luxury of, of large teams. They're doing a lot of firefighting. And so we wanted to know what, what are the fires that you're fighting? And when you get through those, kind of what are your next three strategic initiatives? And um, what are you doing about that? Are you having to grow your own? Are you looking at vendors? What vendors are you looking at if you are? And we kind of get, we probably, if we could get an hour interview, we'd spend 30, 30 minutes at least on understanding the team, the makeup of the team, the tech that they were using, if they could share that and the challenges that they were facing before we would ever broach, hey, here's our idea, what do you think? Yeah, I'm curious to know what's it been like starting really, you mentioned you know, end of 2019, early 2020 is when the business really formed. So what's it been like starting and growing a business in COVID? Yeah, well, I'll answer that in two ways. First was, the shell shock of not being an executive at a big public company anymore with <laughs> people to do things for you, right? It'd been seven and a half years since I'd lived in startup world and you, you kind of forget about some of that stuff. Uh, so there was that, that sudden, uh, you know, Hey, the buck stops here and everything comes, comes together. I think it was really interesting. Um, I would say it was a good time to start a company during COVID because number one, we had, you know, we were, we were just starting. So there was no revenue goals. We hadn't raised any money. There was no pressure. Uh, we could really start thinking about the problem. And then the second thing is COVID trained everyone to work in this remote way and interact in this remote way. And that was great for the interviews. Like there was no, there was no need to go take someone to lunch or take them out somewhere or have a big social event to, to wine and dine. It was like, and everyone had Zoom or WebEx or something. Right. Um, so we were able to get meetings a lot easier than I thought. And then it was a lot less friction than pre-COVID. Um, mm. And then... Hiring was interesting as well because people got into the battle rhythm of working remotely and effectively working remotely in their existing jobs. So when we, you know, finally start hiring and recruiting engineers and researchers, you know, working remote was a piece of cake for them. And that was good. The downside though was I think before COVID, the superpower in recruiting of a startup would be, hey, you can work remote, work from wherever you want, just do your job. Then COVID hit and everyone had that story. And so suddenly you're 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 recruiting against everyone with that message and you had to really figure out a, a different way uh, for you to differentiate versus the, the big. So overall, yeah. uh, really, really good, actually. Yeah. yeah, cool. Okay. And what would, uh, I guess even before I get into that, I'm curious to hear how you and Paul delineate responsibility in a co-CEO role. Yeah. Oh, awesome question. So luckily, Paul and I worked together for, for a number of years and we worked <clears> through <throat> some very difficult situations. Right. And so I think that built a, a great deal of trust in, in each other um, and, and our ability to make decisions and where we were strong. And so in general, we had a couple of premises when we started Permiso, right? We knew kind of broad the shape of what we wanted to do. 
We wanted a culture of high trust and high transparency. And most important to both of us was waking up and doing a job we enjoyed. Um, while there was aspects of being a public company CEO that I liked, there was a lot that I did not like either. So there was things I was looking to avoid. Well, uh, we're kind of, Paul and I are kind of a yin and yang, like when you draw that, that circle out. I love engineering product and building culture and teams. He loves sales and marketing and he loves the chase and, 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 and interacting with customers. And if you're familiar with the yin yang symbol, right? You got white and black on one side and then there's a little white and black dot transposed yeah. on either side. So we both have the ability to do each other's job. He can jump into product. He can jump into engineering. Doesn't get a lot of joy out of it. And I can jump into marketing and sales. Also don't get a lot of joy. So that principle of like, hey, let's do this thing together, build a company and do things that bring us joy was really important for us in, in kind of founding the culture. And that's that's frankly how we came about it. He said, hey, you're going to be CEO, right? Because you were the big boss. And you know, and I'm like, no, I don't want to be CEO. You be CEO. He's like, well, I don't want to be it. And that was basically it. We said, well, let, let's share it. Why not? Yeah. Yeah. Not about ego. It's kind of anti anti ego thing. Yeah, that's probably how you know it's a great fit. Ne yeah. Neither of you were clamoring for it. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Cool. And I'm sure there's a million of them, but if you had to distill like a couple of main priorities or areas of focus for the business, what is it now for you guys? Yeah, we're um, you know we we're lucky enough to have paying customers and we'll never take that for granted, but we're really still building the solution, right? We, we've obviously honed down from, from a very broad thesis to a concrete set of things that we want to deliver. And so right now our focus is, is highly around recruiting companies that believe the same premise that we do, that current tools are not effective in the space and we need something different and built for the cloud and getting them onto the platform and then learning together. Uh, so we spend a lot of time just recruiting new companies and new teams on um, and then working with them to solve problems. And it's a really interesting space we're in because I would say there's not a lot of cloud security professionals out there. Um, if the ones that exist, you pay a, a lot of money to have on your team. And what we see more often than not is um, within a security organization, it's duck, duck, goose. And Jane, you're now the AWS security person. <laughs> and she's like, oh my God, I've been a DFIR person for 10 years. I don't know how to do things in the cloud and it's not unusual. So the challenge that has for us as a product and a startup team is if we go to a customer and say, Hey, what are three or five things that you're worried about seeing in your cloud environment? They actually can't answer it very easily. They don't know. And then they say, and if you, if we did tell you at an incident, you know, what are the steps you would take? They also can't answer that. So it's a, you know, and it's not unusual for an emerging market. And we, we call, I definitely say we're in like a day two situation. Uh, with with cloud detection and response. Um, mm. and and so, you know, the more we can get on these teams of different maturity level uh, levels, then the more we can learn about how do we best serve a moderately advanced cloud security person? How do we best serve a very um, new cloud security person that maybe last week was the endpoint security person? And what are the things that we have to introduce into our product that make that transition? We call, Cloud Zero to Cloud Hero, how do we shorten that time as much as possible? So the more people we can get on, the more teams we can interact with, the more we learn. Um, and I think I think we're getting close to that, that kind of product market fit where we have these reproducible use cases across as many companies and verticals as we as we can. So that that recruitment is important as we, 
you know, look to hopefully ramp up, go to market sometime next year more aggressively. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cool. All right. Well, I know we're about 10 minutes over, so we can go ahead and uh, and step into the quick fire round. Um, sure. That's how we wrap up every interview. So basic premise is I ask you a couple of quick questions and you share whatever comes top of mind. Sound good? Sounds good. Cool. All right. Uh, what is your favorite book? Oh, God. Um, the Name of the Wind. The Name of the Wind. Tell us about it. Uh, it's just a really, really elegantly written fantasy story. Uh, just, it's almost like every bit of prose and it's just perfect. It's almost like I read a lot. So that's why it was hard for me to, to answer that question. Um, fiction, it would be that, it would be that one. Um, and nonfiction, there's a, there's a few others, but it's just elegant. It's like listening to a musician play and you, you know, this person's a master at their craft. And that's what I appreciate around, around that book. Who's the, uh, the author. I'm asking a lot of follow-up questions for a quick fire, but yeah. you have me. Uh, I think it's Patrick <laughs> Rothschild. I never get his, his, his last name, uh, correct here. Name of wind. Rothfuss, Patrick Rothfuss. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Unfortunately, it's a three-part book at series that he has not finished the third book in like 10 years. So uh, how, how about nonfiction? Uh, thank you for being late. That's a really cool book. Yeah. Thomas uh, Friedman. He uh, wrote The World is Fat, Flat. Cool. Okay. Yeah, that's a, that's a cool one about things like cloud and technology innovation, how it's changing the world. Yeah, very good. All right. Um, if you could change one thing about the security industry, what would it be? Wow. Um, I would say that what we were talking about earlier, I would like to see people get exposed to different aspects of what it roles and responsibilities in a security world so that they can understand what it really takes to secure a company. Cool. And last question, uh, if you could go back in time and get a drink with your 20 year old self, uh, what advice would you give him? Uh, yeah, stay true to your, your dreams. Cause I always, and I, I was a paper boy from eight to 12 and I used to make things to sell. I always had this entrepreneurial wish. So I would say keep chasing it because cool. it's very, very fulfilling. Love it. Well, Jason, it was a pleasure to meet you. Thank you so much for, uh, for taking the time to chat with me today. Oh, thanks for having me, Joe. I appreciate it.